Greetings, ladies and metalgents, and welcome to this narration of the web series The Survivor Becomes a Dungeon. If you're new to the series, there is a playlist listed in the description. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Chapter 28 Unknown Point of View It's a peaceful day. Well, relatively peaceful nowadays. Within this massive community are almost all the people I've guided across America. All the way from Seattle since day zero. And everyone we've picked up along the way since we got here. This is the bouquet, my home, and the safe haven my family established before the crap went down. It's been a couple of years since the start of it all. And this humble place has become a bustling trade town. Of course, there's always more work. But today is my day off. I found myself in a semi-private rooftop in the middle of a bustling town, sitting in the shade of an AC unit as I catch up on some night reading. I'm enjoying solitude before being interrupted by a familiar voice. How'd I know I'd find you here? She says with a smile evident in her voice as she climbs the final few rungs of the rooftop and pulls herself over with a grunt. I let out an exaggerated sigh of exasperation before glancing over at the intruder. It was, by now, a familiar young woman by the name of Skylar. Her red eyes glinting from under the shade of a hoodie as she strolled over and sat down beside me. Though she flashed a mischievous smile, her gloved hand set down a satchel of books and snacks at our feet. You know, for the mysterious and aloof son of the leader of the bouquet group, you're rather boring on your off time. She teased mischievously as she offered me a strip of dried meat from a cloth pouch that she'd pulled from her bag. I mean, look at that. What are you even reading? Machining for dummies? She asked. Her lips pursed in an attempt to hold back a laugh as she poked my cheek with another strip of meat. I couldn't help but chuckle softly and shrugged as I looked at the book cover and glanced back at her. You never know when the skills and information may be useful. Besides, a day you don't learn is a day wasted. I quoted my mother to her, who was probably quoting someone else. She couldn't help but smile as she leaned back against the AC unit, fiddling with her sleeves before slowly leaning into me as she pulled some more manga from her bag. So, how many of those skill books are in your collection? She asked knowingly. But I guess she wanted to hear the answer from me. Rolling my eyes, I'd take a mental inventory before shrugging. Well, I found a few more on my last trip, so uh, this one probably makes number 45. She snickered softly as she flipped to a seemingly random page in her book, just shaking her head at the idea of that number. All that useless information is just banging around in your head. I'd eat my left shoe if you actually got the chance to put it to good use. Ha! At least it's more useful than those comics of yours, I retorted, gently elbowing her arm as I settled in with her weight against me. Though that seemingly struck a nerve as she jutted her finger out at me, poking the tip of my nose. Hey, it's called manga, and there's a difference. Uncultured normies like you wouldn't get it, she exclaimed, with a faux haughtiness and a huffed and mocked exaggeration. Oh, really? What is it? A time zone? I joked in response provoking a smile from her as she shared a quiet laugh and settled in to enjoy the peaceful moment. She snorted softly. I just flipped onto the next page. I'm not even going to acknowledge that you absolute pleb, she mused, shooting a glance over to me. 
at which I returned and offered a smile before returning to our books. Fitmori point of view, later in the evening. Are you sure about this? I asked Sassita as he gives me a simple nod. Yes, almighty oh Vitmori. I've spoken with the people of Haven, and we've decided that you've done more than enough for us. Your generosity certainly touched the men and women in our community. But now that you've given us a roof over our heads, we like to do more for ourselves so that we don't burden you. He explained while sitting on both knees before my pedestal as he spoke. I wasn't sure about this, but at the same time it made perfect sense. That threat in the cave below my mountain should be my primary focus. I suppose this whole log house project has been a considerable sinkhole in my manner gain now that I think about it. The more I think about it, the more I can't help but give a metaphorical sigh in response. I see. Well, uh, don't hesitate to ask for help. I don't mind it all too much and will be happy to help if I can. After all, you asked me to protect you, so it's the least I can do. Zacitus smiled sagely as he lowered his head before getting to his clawed feet again. Of course, Vitmori. And when we need your help, we shall ask. All right, all right. I won't press the situation any further, I relent. It makes sense in the end. As much as I could do to take care of these people, they are people in the end, and they will want to be able to rely on themselves to be satisfied with themselves at the end of the day. Zazeter chuckled softly. <laughs> now then, I wish you a good day. I should be returning to Haven. He excused himself before turning to leave as he ducked out the entryway to my chamber. Well then, now I guess I have some time on my hands. Uru, hey buddy, uh, are you feeling alright? You, you've been sitting still for an awfully long while. Uru, I called out to him, but no response. Is he in that deep thought? End of chapter. Chapter 29. With Maury point of view. Uru, hey there little buddy. Uh, what's going on? I'm getting a little worried. And it's been like half an hour since I noticed he just had been sitting there in a daze. However, when I look closer at him, I'm fascinated by what I see. He's circulating the manor throughout his body in a way that a warrior would, but taking advantage of his unique shape. The manor is instead acting like a manor ring. He's efficiently using what he has with little waste. But what is he using it for? Almost suddenly, Uru stares, shaking his head and blinking a few times as if collecting himself. It's only then that I realize that he was more here than he was moments ago. Finally! Hey there, buddy. What's up? Everything all right? I ask him with a proper concern. Upon hearing my voice in his mind, I watch him jump with surprise. I almost feel a little bad, but he makes such an amusing-looking confused expression with the end of his tail hanging limply in his mouth. He then looked up at me, surprisingly not at my core, but directly at where my perspective was on him. Oh, can you see me then? Neat. Now, how about you tell me what you've been burning your manor for? I asked, a small smile on my imaginary face as I watched him patiently. Uru gazed intently at me with his serpentine eyes. I could feel the thoughts swirling around in an anxious tangle as he watched me. I shook my perspective back around my core as I looked down at him again. Uru, in turn, followed me as he moved around before settling in a loose coil and flicking his tongue in contemplation. After a few more moments, he closed his eyes and lowered his head. 
and in moments I saw impressions of memories and images flickering around my imaginary mind. Hmm. For a homebody who prefers to stay around my chamber rather than out and about, you've sure been busy. Spiders, bogs, and monsters in the basement. Don't threaten me with a good time. So there are more things to worry about than just my mountain and the haven. It seems the list is just growing day by day, and it hasn't even been a month yet. I'm still not exactly sure what I'm going doing here, but I think I'm doing good enough for just figuring things out. You'd think that there would be some kind of tutorial. Ping! Ping, ping, ping. Almost suddenly, it feels like my senses are overwhelmed as numbers and screens and panels and notifications flood my field of view. No matter where I look, there is something to look at. It's almost like turning on your phone after being spammed with texts. Yet, much more invasive since I can't turn it off for some reason. Welcome, congrats, Vassal Opta, Territory, and Stat, Trip, Vassal Opta, Mold, Earth, Halfster, Aspect, Souls, Gem, Matilla, Anamanip, Solmanip, Korlev, Soldva, Aspect. Before I could start reading all the stuff as it appeared before me, it all suddenly disappeared. I can't help but take the metaphorical step back after the overload and then the sudden absence of information as I look around again. In the next moment, a single screen appears before me as text rolls out on it. Good work so far, candidate. You've excelled beyond predicted expectations. I can hear a familiar voice echoing within my mind, speaking as the text appear. It's certainly been as wild since I've heard you, I responded. Not exactly sure what is happening right now. The screen goes blank as more words come down. A system would only serve as shackles for someone as intuitive as you. Keep growing, keep learning, and keep surviving. Oh, well, thanks, I guess. The screen blanks again before continuing. For your efforts, I'll grant you some information. All right. I certainly won't say no to that. The screen refreshes once more as the voice echoes within me. You are the only one from your world here, but you are not the only candidate. I see. Okay, but that doesn't really affect me right now. What else? Yet again, the screen clears and more text slides on in. There are only four years until the first calamity. Make sure that you are ready for it. Well, crap. That's annoyingly vague, but I appreciate the warning. The screen vanishes, and I think it's almost over before I hear the voice resound within me, and it feels decidedly more feminine than earlier. I'll keep checking in on you. In the end, you'll never be alone here. They say that, but I do feel strange emptiness that wasn't noticeable before once our connection was severed. Though, in the next moment, I hear a concerned hissing sound, and I realize I must have been totally zoned out with all that weird stuff that just happened. Ah, sorry about that, Uruuru. My mind was suddenly elsewhere for a while there. Uh, now then, what did you want to do about all of this? I asked as I looked down at him. He was still watching me curiously, and his head tilted ever so slightly at a perfect 45-degree angle while his tongue flicked a couple of times. Oh, don't give me that. You were zoned out for over an hour over there, and you're telling me I can't do it for a few minutes. I retort with some vague amusement. Despite lacking shoulders, Uru just gave me a shrug as he watched, though I could feel his mind whirling with ideas and thoughts as he gazed intently at me. I see. So you encountered resistance with the sight of yours, and you want to go kick its ass. Uh, fine. You have my permission. Go for it, little buddy. If you want to step up to the plate, I have no problem with it. 
Uru flicks his tongue once more before offering a scaly smile of thanks as he slips away. He seemingly hesitates at the entrance to my chamber before slithering forward with a hardened resolve. Uru point of view. He made his way down the mountain like he's done many times before. But instead of hunting for a meal, he's out here slithering for a fight. Though he was already regretting telling Vitmori he wanted to go by himself to deal with the issue, and he also knew that he couldn't just turn around after the declaration like that. Through all of his internal fretting, Uru didn't even realize that he was already in front of the cave entrance, towards where the threat was. It, uh, it looked bigger when he was right in front of it. Even if he was a whole seven feet of scales and muscle, he really only lifted his head a couple of feet off the ground. Taking a deep breath, he lets it out, slow, hissing a sigh before slithering forward again. He had someone to take down, and he wasn't about to let Basti take the spotlight again. The caverns were eerily silent, devoid of even natural life. It was almost as if the last ounce of mana and the vital energy was drained from this place. Uruu flicked his tongue into the air, tasting only stale as he approached the threshold Basti had crossed before. He felt, well, he felt anxious for one. To his eyes, there was a physical barrier that dripped with noxious purple fumes. With another flick of his tongue, Uru could taste that this place was where death came to be forgotten. With a shiver, he pushed forward and crossed the threshold. A chill was sent down the length of his body as he made his way through. It wasn't until the very tip of his tail crossed that he felt a sinking feeling within his very soul. His connection with Vidmori being cut off as he felt utterly alone. But only for a moment. All too suddenly, the air was suffocating to his senses. The total weight of the presence stopping his sight from peering into here earlier was now watching his every move. Uru pushed on, and the more the presence watched him, the more Uru could tell that it wasn't the source of the stale manner that hung in the air. Crossing the room with a skeleton storm Basti battled, he could see that there were no change or even attempt to restore this room to what it once was. The room, like the rest of this place, was just dead. It wasn't long until he slithering through the next passageway. This way was longer and even winding as he begins to send deeper below the earth for where he entered. The pathway was littered with traps, dangers and snarls, yet there was no danger. At some point, Uru even went out of his way to trigger and set off these traps. Yet all he could sense were the wisps of their intent, dull clicks of mechanisms and the final wither of the cords of snares as they failed to perform their only duty. Finally, he entered into a new chamber, the stench and filth and decay ravaging his tongue and nose as he flinched after slithering fully into the room. The moment he entered, the room shifted, and he could feel hundreds of presences writhe in response. In the next instance, hundreds of eyes turned to look at him. Their gleams of purplish reflective eyes looked him over, and he recognizes the distinct feeling behind each of them. They hunger. After eternity passes, in a moment, a mound of flesh rises in the far side of the room. It pushes up standing on its hind legs as Uruu looks it over. The words to describe it is suddenly form in his mind. The wretched brood mother. A throaty rumble echoes from the massive figure and a voice that has not been heard by anyone now calls out, Feed us! 
With a humble request, the rats move forward in a single wave of pestilent flesh and swarm over the round Ururu, dozens of teeth becoming hardened as they tear each other apart to consume him. The scent of his own flesh and blood intermingling with the rot of the rats as his body burns through his manner to recover and rebuild himself. His senses are drowned under the overwhelming desperation of the rodents. Their hunger invades his mind and leaves no other room for thought. He knows this feeling. It was one that was haunted him since the birth. The only reason he has forgotten it. Yet here he was, being consumed by it once again. Though, from the outside, instead of from within. That's right. He is Uruu, the serpent with the hunger to consume the world. In that instant of realization, he lashes out, snatching at the first rat and devouring it while it destroys him. Then, it was the next rat, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one. He'll take their hunger as his own, and he won't feed them anymore. They shall feed him. Hours go by as the cycle repeats again and again. Consume, be consumed, consume some more, and be stripped down to the bone before devouring the next. Consume until the only hunger that could be felt was his own. Now there was nothing left of the serpent that came in here. Uru is a whole new being, fresh, new, and reborn in devouring the hunger of others. He rises high and tall, the length of his body now just over 15 feet. He looks down at the broodmother, who has now been dwarfed by being hunger before her. She doesn't retaliate, and she doesn't even flinch. Instead, she looks up at Uru before lowering her head in utter gratitude. Slowly, Taking a raspy breath, she speaks out for a final time. Thank you for the meal, she says ever so softly before being met by Uru's more as he also takes on her hunger. End of chapter. Chapter 30. With Mori point of view. While Uru hasn't come back yet, the amount of mana he sent my way is impressive. Looking at my core, a full three rings are swirling around strongly within me, while many lights glimmer deeper within the center of the core. The foes my beasts encounter don't make sense. Sure, they retaliate, but why aren't they so thankful? I can't say that I am really entirely unfamiliar with the idea of facing someone who can be content with their own death. But I certainly didn't expect to find beings like that in a world that hasn't ended like my own. But now that I think about it, their world has ended. The world of things being below my mountain has come to a stagnant halt for possibly hundreds of years, utterly devoid of any stimulation. Will that eventually happen to me? I haven't really reconsidered, but I am by no means a human being anymore. I can't age, I can't bleed, and I can't taste or even feel. Then again, I've died already. I shouldn't have expected that I would be the same person I was before all of this let alone be even considered a person at all. I look around my chamber, and as of right now, I'm entirely alone. Basti and her clubs are down in the haven, and they plan to spend the night while Jack is still out on his scouting trip for seeds and crops. My three zombie mutants are in the form of stasis in my storage, and Dread appears to be doing some meditation in his training room. As for Ururu, he hasn't moved after clearing the room with the rats, and I'm not entirely sure. What he's up to. But what I do know is that I can at least sense where he is now. 
whatever that threshold was, seems to be fading away from all around the territory of the being below the mountain. While I'm not entirely sure what the rat was doing, what I am sure about is that I wanted to do that for me, since it should only help. While I don't have any rat corpses in my storage, I do know where I can find some rats. Hopefully, Uru doesn't mind. But I go ahead and I pluck the giant rat from his stomach and set it about before my pedestal. At this point, I am glad that I can't actually taste or smell since the thing before me is utterly rancid. However, I can't let myself get too distracted as I decided to commit some of my manner to this rat. First things first, this rat is about the size of a mastiff. I mean, this thing is genuinely a rodent of unusual size. I go ahead and condense this down to the size of a small muskrat, trimming away the rot, pestilence and decay from her flesh and just tossing it into my burn pile within my storage. Next, while I work on optimizing her as I had with Zassita, using minute amounts of my mana to rebuild her from her whiskers to her tail. The finished product appears to be a particularly large fancy rat that could be found in pet stalls if it wasn't for her considerable size. She looks like she was sleeping, lying peacefully on the stone with almost silky smooth and glossy looking chestnut brown fur. I'm about to name her, but hold off as I pour enough mana to restore her original soul of the rat into her refurbished body. I watch as her body shudders before taking in a deep breath. Rat point of view. I am not dead. She slowly opens her eyes and looks around. Her violet gaze glances around before she notices the call before her. It was a young, vibrant, then just radiated warmth. She was entranced, rising to her haunches as she stepped forward with her hind legs. Her hand reaches out as if to touch the young core before realizing how small she is. Snapping out of her trance, she looks herself over, flexing her hands and rolling her shoulders. That's when she also noticed the band of green fur wrapping around her right upper arm. She went to touch the ring, running her fingers through the fur, which felt so much softer and more luxurious than she could ever remember. Looking at herself over the next couple minutes, she noticed that everything about her was different, yet she could feel that this was also her original body. She was still herself. Now you're done admiring yourself, a voice speaks from within her head, making her squeak with surprise as she looks up at the core, recognizing it to be the source. He sounds amused, maybe even pleased. <laughs> so, so sorry about that. I, I, I wasn't sure if this was a real or just a fantasy of death, she murmured sheepishly. Her feet pitter-pattering in place under the focus of the call before her. Oh, you can talk. Great. That'll make this all so much smoother. He responded, once more sounding rather pleased by the situation. Make what easier? She asks almost worriedly. Asking this next question, he clarified for her as she looked up the call curiously. Do you want to live? Her ear twitched in surprise as she rested on her haunches. Does she want to live? She's lived for so long. But can she really call that living? Well, why do you ask? She finally decided to say as she clasps her hands together anxiously. The call seems to take its time to think it over, and she can't help but allow herself to sort of relax under the comforting green glow it gives off. After a time, he finally speaks up within her. I'm giving you a choice, mainly because you are the oldest living thing I've ever met so far. You were content with your death and for the end of suffering of your brood. If you wish to return to your eternal rest, I'll send you back as painlessly as I can manage. She was taken aback. This call was so uh, 
considerate. She can tell how much mana was used to make her this way, and she can feel all the little fine details of work that was put into her. Yet he was willing to throw away all of this effort and mana based on whether or not she wanted to live. She looked at her hands again, flexing her ratty fingers, and then looking back at the comforting glow of the core before her. If it was someone like him, she could see herself truly living another day. Daya, I want to live if you'll have me, she said softly as she brought her hands down to her sides and clenched them with her resolve. She could feel the joy radiate from him as he spoke within her once more. Fantastic! I hope you'll be happy here with my team. I suppose I ought to grant you a name now, hmm? The joy she could feel was surprising, and she knew now that she had made the right choice to follow his call. Hmm, all right, uh, I'll name you Frisbee. I hope you're able to live well and be happy in my service. With that dedication of a name, she felt a wave of manner wash over her and fill her from within. With Maury point of view. There we go. Her manner heart is ignited, and with just a bit more manner, I develop a ring around her heart while I'm at it. It's a good thing her body was so willing to react to my manner. Though I ended up breaking one of the three rings I have enough after everything I did to build her up again. I watch as Brisby's shoulders under the weight of my manner, but then relaxes as one purple eye turns emerald, green like my core. It was at that point that Uruu had finally returned, and upon entering my chamber, I was finally able to appreciate how much he's grown. My goodness, Uruu, you've become huge! If I thought that you were big before, you've really become my big guy now. I'm going to have to make you and Brara bigger again. Uruu, despite his size, actually appeared bashful under all my attention. Flicking his tongue as he lowered his head in thanks, he moves to sit in the stone sand when he notices Frisbee is just sitting there before my pedestal. He slithers closer, seemingly recognizing her presence, and flicks his tongue in her general direction. Ah, yes, uh, sorry to take food from your mouth, but I thought that it would be wasteful for this rat to end up just as lunch. Meet Frisbee, our newest recruit, I say, metaphorically gesturing to her. I expect her to say something, at least, but when I look at her, she's standing totally still, save for the twitch in her ear. Frisbee, ew, uh, are you in there? But it's no use. She had her hands clasped together and seemed to be admiring Uruu, apparently smitten, if what I was sensing was right. End of chapter. Chapter 31 Ferodius point of view. Ness, please pay attention. You're the one who asked me to read you this month's summary. Regan admonished, lightheartedly, flashing a smirk at the man as he tapped the stack of papers into his other hand. Ferodius sighed a bit, his ash-gray feline ears twitching with annoyance before yawning loudly and leaning back into his seat. I know, I know, Regan. I just can't help it. All of this paperwork is soul-draining. I'm half-tempted to knock it off the desk. He mused mischievously as he glanced over to his right hand and friend. Regan shares Ferodius's mischievous mood for a moment before shaking his head and sitting on the edge of the desk. In any case, the new fertilizer and farming techniques we implemented earlier this year have more than tripled our yields compared to previous years. Our stores are full, and the abundance has driven a healthy jolt into the average populace. Ferodius flashes a fanged half-smile and glances over at Regan. Who knew just adding some extra stuff to the dirt and changing how we plant them would do so much? The answer was simple, and I wonder how he missed it. Regan nodded intently at that, 
With that in mind, reports show that with less of a need to work for sustenance, we have seen higher attendance to the school that was implemented last year. Outside of that, we're also seeing more people showing up to the public training yards, increasing our combat effectiveness of the average commoner and raising the overall quality of the mercenaries and guards that join or are recruited into their respective guilds and barracks. Parodius listened intently, his left ear twitching thoughtfully before glancing at Beacon. But are they happy? he asked, with a surprising amount of somberness. Regan quirked a brow, curiously, glancing back at Ferodius before standing up off his desk and turning to face him. Yes, my lord, they're happy. He offered Ferodius a half-smile before flipping through the pages of the report until he found something. With what I mentioned earlier in mind, the average cobbler is more confident in themselves and more willing to try new things, like schooling or other forms of education, to better themselves Crimes of desperation are curtailed by the abundance which keeps even the remaining few slums contently fed. Neighborhood watches have been formed by cobblers and have served to prevent and stop active crime, often before the gods show up to intervene. All in all, national pride is high, as people are happy to call this empire their home, Regan explained with a grin, though he realized something and continued, As for the recently annexed lands, I will admit there is tension. But between beneficial policies and the previously mentioned abundance, things are going remarkably smoother than predicted. Verodius nodded intently, his tail distinctly lashing behind him through the hole in his comfortably padded workchair. All right, that's enough for the summary. I'll look it over later tonight after dinner, he said, waving a hand dismissively as he massaged his temples with his other hand. Regan nodded intently, a pointed ear seemingly twitching randomly, though he glanced at the door moments before a knock sounded. Looking at Ferodius for a moment, he looks back at the door again. Enter! In stepped one of the Imperial messengers, the harpy man taking a knee and lowering his head before offering an envelope in one hand out before him. Pardon the intrusion, your highness. I bring a letter from Mage Revire. Once Regan took up the letter, the messenger stood, bowed and hurried out as professionally as possible to get back to work. Looking over the letter, he held it out to Ferodius, who took it up, seemingly forgetting about the headache for a moment. Well, she's not dead. That's good news, Regan mused lightly. Oh, stop. Ferodius snickered a toothy grin as he cut the letter open and the claw before looking it over. Huh. Regan had been reviewing the summary for himself when he glanced over at Ferodius, curiously. Something the matter... Ferodius was silent for a bit as he considered the letter's contents before holding it out for Regan to read as well, which he did. A new dungeon core, young but powerful with sentient intelligence. Regan studied the letter intently before speaking up again. Brutal, but benevolent. He seems willing and open to cooperate with us against the theocracy and the hegemony. Regan stroked his chin as he looked over the letter once more before setting it down at his desk. What are you thinking? Ferodius' tail went still in contemplation before letting out a heavy sigh as he shook his head. I'm still thinking. For now, let's just wait for Revire to return to us. Regan nodded sagely at Ferodius' words. Just then, both of their ears twitched as they heard a familiar set of steps approach. Ferodius flashed a bit of a smile in anticipation. A gentle knock sounded out from the door as Ferodius spoke up, this time with a smile evident in his voice. Come in, darling. A good-looking young woman stepped inside, carrying a tray with a steaming mug and some sort of treat. Good afternoon, my lord, 
she enthused cheerfully, being all formal for only the moment before dropping the act, before closing the door as she came over to Verodius' side, setting the tray down as a feline emperor took a deep breath of the scent and what his beloved had brought. Regan flashed a grin as he looked between the two and saw a chance to leave them alone. If you'll excuse me, Empress Astorietta, my lord, I have other matters to tend to. With that, he lowered his head before making his exit. Ferodius grinned as he nodded at Regan while he made his exit. He then looked over at Historietta and chuckled a bit. <laughs> You're never going to stop going into the kitchen, hmm? You're going to give Alina even more grey hairs, he mused mischievously to her. She snickered softly as she leaned in and kissed his forehead before looking down into his eyes with a chestnut gaze. She can try and stop me all she wants. As long as the other maids keep coming to me for treats, I'll always have a way in. She mused affectionately while sitting on the arm of his chair. Herodias's ears twitched with delight as the kiss before as he looked down the tray she brought. Now, what have you made for me? Just that matcha you've been talking about? She beamed enthusiastically. Yes, I finally found a good blend of green tea and made a satisfying matcha. She mentioned while sitting on the mug before him. And these are some dark chocolate brownies made by crumbled bacon pieces. I know sweets aren't your thing, but I do believe you'll enjoy the bitter, savory taste of this treat. She explained, setting down a small plate before him as she used the other hand to run her fingers through his head fur gently and massage one of his ears. He shuddered under her touch and glanced up at her. It smells fantastic. He gingerly takes up the mug, slowly taking a sip of the warm drink as it traveled through his body. He then takes a bite of the treat. The bitter edge complimented the savory surprise of the bacon, which was then complimented by the follow-up swig of tea. His tail curling as he enjoys the treat. Another perfect delight, Tori. He practically purred to her as he busied himself with what was in front of him. She beamed some more as she savored her cooking. By the way, green tea also works wonders for hair. A special blend with some oils can enrich your fur, making it even glossier and healthier. It's also good for skin. So all in all, it's good cosmetic treatment for men and women of many races. She explained while continuing to toy with his head fur. Her eyes wandered as she spotted a distinct letter amongst all the paperwork. His ears twitched under her touch and he chewed up another bite of the brownie. I see. Well, if you say so, I'll give it a try. He enthused warmly, though he glanced at her, having noticed that she was now murmuring under her breath. What's the matter, my darling? She blinked a few times as she was shaking something away before smiling a little at him and gesturing at the letter. Is, uh, well, does that word mean anything to you? Ferodius looked up at her curiously before licking his lips and looking at the letter again. What word? But Maury, it's just the name of a newly discovered core. He answered as he looked up at her again. She hummed thoughtfully for a moment before deciding to confess. Well, the reason I asked is because that sounds rather similar to some words in a dead language I'm aware of. She explained as Ferodiously listened intently. Essentially, the two words that make up that name are life and death. She said as Ferodius nodded slowly, sipping at the mug before looking over at the letter with a new appreciation. End of chapter. Chapter 32. Unknown point of view. Day Zero. It was just another day, like any other. We drove up to Seattle earlier this week, stopping in that Washington branch of Rose Private Security to meet up with a big client. My folks are off meeting with a client on the other side of town, whereas I've got the day off. 
As lovely as our hotel is, I decided to stretch my feet and walk around the downtown area before ending up in a small little cafe. Ducking inside, I'm greeted by a refreshing warmth that is in great contrast to the damned northern cold. The cafe is relatively quiet, and with a healthy blend of people, business people, students, the elderly, and tourists like myself. It wasn't long before I was sipping some Seattle blend black tea, which was surprisingly good. Almost absently, I was scrolling through the various and nearly random articles on my smartphone, going through my specialized newsfeed. I had, of course, seen half of these articles before. But what was concerning was that more and more similar stories with reports of brutal killings all across the country. People having to get their skulls caved in to stop their rampages, and their bodies seemingly halfway rotted within hours despite how recent and often the events happened. Skeptics claimed that it was some sort of crazy hybrid of rabies and some necrosis. But true conspiracists could see the writing on the wall, and it was only a matter of time till something happened that pushed everything over the edge. Unfortunately, it was at that moment when almost everyone's phones started going off. The emergency broadcast program blaring out before the automated voice began to play out. This is a notice from the CDC in collaboration with the National Guard. Martial law is now in effect, reported mandatory shelter in place for residents in Seattle due to hazardous materials release. Take self-protective actions immediately. 1. Go inside immediately and stay inside your house or building. 2. Bring pets indoors only if you can do so quickly. 3. Close all windows and doors. 4. Turn off air conditioners and heating system blowers. 5. Close fireplaces, dampeners. 6. Gather radios, flashlights, food, water and medicines. 7. Call 911 only if you have a true emergency. You will be advised. The cafe had been deathly quiet as the message blared out. However, the uncertainty of this was all real suddenly shattered as gunfire sounded out in the streets, followed by screams and the sound of destruction that everyone only now realized had been going on for the last few minutes. Cars slammed into each other with a sickening crunching before erupting into billowing smoke and flames. The sounds muted by the thick glass between us and the outside. People were running in all directions when a figure lunged out for the back of the man that ran across in front of the window, tackling him into the ground with an inhuman growl. A spray of blood erupted from out of view as it spattered against the glass. In the disaster situation, when people are faced with matters of life and death, only 10% of people are able to react appropriately and be able to affect the situation positively. 20% of people panic and make decisions that only turn things for the worse, whereas the remaining 70% freeze in place of tragedy and are unable to move from the shock. All it took was for one person in the cafe to shove another, throwing them to the ground as they made for the door to try and leave. There was a large guy, maybe in his early 20s, barreling through the door which launched the rest of the patrons into a frenzy. A brawl breaks out between a businessman and a construction worker as they trip over themselves, while the barista watches helplessly. I can already see that crap is hitting the fan, and it's only going to get worse if I stick around here. I reach for my knife and sidearm, only to realize that I had left them back at the hotel like a moron. Instead of pushing for the main entrance, I decide to slip out the back, stepping past the barista and heading into the back of the cafe. I spotted a giant wooden spoon stained from coffee and snatched it up, making my way out the back door. I looked left and right, trying to figure out which way I should go to make my way back to the hotel safely. 
I press my back against the brick of the wall before sliding my phone out of my pocket as I quickly fire off a text to my folks. We had a contingency to meet outside the town if anything were to happen and to not meet up under any circumstances if we started in separate places. This way, we could focus on our survival without compromising each other. Still alive, on way to hotel. I rapidly texted before jumping with surprise, hearing the disguised crunch of metal against brick as the way to the left is blocked off. My decision was made for me. Turning to look at the crumpled vehicle, the driver had been still alive, though not anymore, as three of those things had swarmed the car, ripping the broken metal apart and rending the poor bastard to pieces. Not waiting to hear back from my parents, I slipped my phone back into my pocket and broke into a sprint as I made my way to the end of the alley. Stopping short, two of those monsters sprinted past, lunging into an already growing cluster of those non-people. It only took an instant, but I could recognize the shoes of that big dude who ran first, as well as a few of the other patrons from the cafe. Taking a moment to look right and left on the road, I psyched myself up before booking it across the street needing to heap up a few more blocks to reach the nearby hotel. Everything was a blur. I heard gunfire all too distinctly. Cries and inhuman howling overloaded my senses. Bursting through the revolving doors, the lobby was sparse and relatively empty. It was hard to miss the mess of blood spattering against a couple of panes of the revolving doors. I could also hear a sick crunching and chewing coming behind the blood-splattered receptionist's desk. But I didn't dare to check it out. Instead, I rushed past the elevator and took the service stairs, rushing up as each and every step reported back to me in a resounding echo. Reaching the seventh floor and carelessly going for the door, I met by a howling face of one of those freaks as it looks up at me when I trespassed on its meal. What used to be a man was now sprawled on the floor in a bloodied heap. I think I saw him twitch, but the gore-covered thing in front of me demanded my attention as it rushed towards me. I didn't have nearly as much room as I would have wanted to maneuver around, though I managed to bring up that wooden spoon I grabbed, wedging it between that bastard's teeth as they failed to make contact with me. Its limitless strength, the dead hunger in its eyes, and the ferocity was almost overwhelming. I could feel the strain in my arms, and my legs threatened to buckle, but as my back was pressed against the railing, I was struck with an inspiration as I twisted desperately and sent the fecker over the edge. Panting heavily, I clung to the railing as I watched the freak fall forever in the next few seconds and land with a splattering crunch. Taking a moment to ensure it didn't get back up, I did my best to shake off the moment. I steadied myself before pushing through the door and looking down the hallway. It was quiet and empty, as if the world wasn't ending. If only there wasn't a fresh, still-bleeding corpse to shatter the illusion as I rushed down the hall. My footsteps were dull and thudding against the carpet when I finally reached my hotel room door. My hands were so damn jittery while I fumbled for my wallet and retrieved my keycard. Unlocking the door, slipping inside and shutting the door behind myself with a heavy click. Panting hotly and heavily, my legs gave out beneath me. All that training and preparation, yet I could only run away. My back was against the door as I leaned into it and looked down at my trembling hands and legs. Come on, you bastard! Get up! You've got things to do! But Maury, point of view. I finished sorting through the corpses of the slaver caravan and stripped them of all their equipment and armor, leaving on the bare minimum of clothes for the sake of decency. Of the 14 corpses, I've decided to turn half of them into mana zombies, 
They were mostly all of the basic caravan guards and the drivers, but two were acolytes with bodies meant for using magic and mana. The results were mostly as expected, but the two acolyte zombies seemed to have a frighteningly advanced primal instinct already as they meandered through the rest of the mana zombies and used simple healing magic to erase the wounds which littered the moving corpses. By the end of it, they all looked just like sickly people with the posture problems and a tendencies to grow. Of the remaining seven, three of them were holy knights, and the rest of them were acolytes. I know these corpses. I know their lives, histories, dreams, and passions. I suppose it is a drawback of absorbing their memories. But in understanding who they were, I know who I want them to be instead. These were the holy people, the pinnacle of what they claimed to be is the best of their souls. Yet here they were, escorting people they condemned into slavery for being the wrong race. In my eyes, these people were the worst kinds of sinners. And you know what? That's how I'll use them. And these will be my seven deadly sinners. Laying them out side by side, I look among the men and women and call out the bodies as I pour into them a bare minimum of manner I can to make the change. Rise, my sinners! Wake and serve me! I name you pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. Stand and strike down the fouler evils of this world in my name. Even if I intended to use the bare minimum of mana to wake them as I did with dread, the sheer number of them ended up breaking one of my two condensed mana rings, but I still had one ring left with many glittering in the center. My sinners all began to wake up, standing one after the others as their eyes glimmer with a faint green glow similar to Dredd's eyes when he first woke. It was an odd sensation. I could feel their minds were fresh, new, and unique. None of the original souls were here now, and these beings were near new to the world. After a few moments, they seemed to realize I'm watching and looked up to the ceiling in the direction of where my core would be before they all dropped to their knees as pride is the first to speak. Creator of it, Mori, we thank you for bringing us into this life. We exist to serve. I can feel pride swelling up in my symbolic heart. The overwhelming sense of unparalleled dedication towards me and effectively distracted me for more than a few moments until I managed to gather myself. You are all weak now in your current forms. Head down to my mountain and find your commander, who goes by the name Dread and study your bodies and find the muscle memory within you until you can master yourselves. The seven sinners rise and salute by slamming their fists into their chest as pride speaks for them once more. As you will, creator, we shall obey. With that, they file up and head out into the chill night air to begin their training. End of chapter. I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Casper Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, Lord Azrakal, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Dragzoon, WRE, Holly's Sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.